Radioactive plugs you into the community weeknights at 6. I'm Laura Jones, and your support means Radioactive can keep passing the mic to people and nonprofits making a difference, like Fridays for Future Climate Strikers. Uproot the system basically means that we want to reorganize and drastically change the political, social, and economic systems. Radiothon starts October 29th. Help us to keep plugging you into the community by making your donation online at krcl.org. This is Radioactive, and I'm Laura Jones. By the People is a new nonprofit, relatively speaking, in that it started just before COVID hit. Their goal is to help communities overcome money and politics by joining together on common causes. They've been trying to get their app, By the People, off the ground. Let's pass that microphone for an update. Hi, my name's David. I'm here representing By the People. We're a 501c3 here in Utah, creating a platform called One Democracy. We're trying to give our communities a better voice and try to overcome the friction of money in politics. Hi, my name is Joel McKay-Smith. I'm with NeoITO Inc., a development company based out of Kerala, India, that is exceptionally interested in being the development partner with by the people as they continue to uh, grow and and flourish. Less people think you're in India, too. You're a longtime resident of the state, and you and I go back to uh, 1984 and bad fashion choices. Good to see you, Joel. (laughs) Always a pleasure. So, David, it's been, oh, a couple of years since we first crossed paths and had you on the show talking about One Democracy and creating this platform to help people navigate politics the way they'd like to versus special interests or even politicians. So give us a status update. Where does One Democracy and By the People stand today here in 2021? Cool. Yeah, it's great to be back with you, Laura. Um, We are currently raising funds for beta development. We have an entire interface that we've been researching and working very diligently on for the last few years. And it's finally at a place where you can go to our website and you can explore it and you can learn how One Democracy interacts with the community. And right now we're looking to raise more awareness and kick off a sustained crowdfunding effort. A big party coming up on October 13th. What's that about? Yeah, so uh, there's a Silicon Slopes convention um, at the Salt Palace so we are renting out a space across the street at the Soundwell to try and raise awareness in the tech community. So we got a bunch of really awesome local artists coming to play and we're going to do a silent uh, silent auction. And basically, yeah, just kind of try to bring this community together with the tech community and explore options for the next iteration of digital democracy. Now, digital democracy, I know both of you are quite aware of the news cycle. And as we record this, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp are down. And it's uh, curious, given the explosive 60 Minutes interview on Sunday evening with the whistleblower who has documentation showing the algorithms and what Facebook knows about its harm in our civil societies. So I'm just kind of curious where you hope to position uh, by the people in one democracy in the face of this. David. Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. And um, I don't know if many of you are familiar with the social dilemma, but it kind of highlights how social media has been basically a giant as far as influencing not just commercial, but as also politics. 
And we kind of consider ourselves to be somewhat of an antidote for the social dilemma. So we kind of take those uh, algorithms out of the picture and we allow users to, they can verify themselves as local. So it becomes one person, one vote versus $1, one vote. Ah, Joel, what are your, what's your take on what I'm sure you've either saw or uh, been reading about? Well, number one, it's about time that somebody from the inside tells us what's actually been going on there. But the nice thing about what David's been working towards is we're going to be able to have a voice that isn't going to be as biased. There certainly will be some people in here that try to mess with the system, but they're not going to succeed as uh, what we've run into with all of the different um, social medias. I think that the, um, the repercussions that are going to happen with social media as a result, the whistleblower, it's going to change how the perception is of the social media and um, and how it, it actually affects uh, politics and, and how people think. I, I couldn't agree with David Moore about the social dilemma. Very scary stuff. And the social dilemma, explain that for folks. I think a lot of us are familiar with the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um Basically, the social media is a film that depicts the harms of uh, current social media in our political and social environments. And it describes the way that algorithms and special interests have been able to sort of divide and conquer to an extent that we haven't really ever seen with traditional journalism and other news sources. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty, how do you say it? It's, um, really divisive rhetoric that we're seeing on our social media and it's kind of tearing our communities apart and affecting our ability to really come together on, uh, common sense legislation. Yeah. Things that make us angry, the algorithm feeds that, understands that about us and our feeds and feeds it to us. I'll put a link in the show notes to this uh, 2020 documentary, The Social Dilemma. I believe it's still streaming on Netflix, folks. But um, uh, once again, what's your website, David, and the who, what, when, where, why of the October 13th event during Silicon Slopes? Awesome. Yeah, you can uh, learn more about our organization at onedemocracy.org. And there's a link to Silicon Votes 21, we're calling the event. Uh, there's, it's going to start at 5 PM, go till midnight. We have local artists such as Morgan Snow, Burnell Washburn, Simply B, Shannon Blake, and the Spirit Machines. We're really looking forward to having them. And then we have some really awesome local sponsors for our silent auction. So, uh, yeah, you can check that out at onedemocracy.org slash Silicon Slopes 21. And if you're interested in helping our mission, we're just getting this uh, crowdfunder off the ground and we can use all the support we can get. Thanks, David and Joel. Check tonight's show notes for links to the event at Silicon Slopes by One Democracy. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to Radioactive, a show that plugs you into the community, weeknights at 6. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, the New York Times recognized climate change leader and author, up next. This is Radioactive, and I'm Laura Jones. By the People is a new nonprofit, relatively speaking, in that it started just before COVID hit. Their goal is to help communities overcome money and politics by joining together on common causes. They've been trying to get their app, By the People, off the ground. 
Let's pass that microphone for an update. Hi, my name is David. I'm here representing By the People. We're a 501c3 here in Utah, creating a platform called One Democracy. We're trying to give our communities a better voice and try to overcome the friction of money in politics. Hi, my name is Joel McKay-Smith. I'm with NeoITO, Inc., a development company based out of Kerala, India, that is exceptionally interested in being the development partner with By the People as they continue to uh, grow and, and flourish. Less people think you're in India, too. You're a longtime resident of the state, and you and I go back to uh, 1984 and bad fashion choices. Good to see you, Joel. <laughs> Always a pleasure. So, David, it's been, oh, a couple of years since we first crossed paths and had you on the show talking about One Democracy and creating this platform to help people navigate politics the way they'd like to versus special interests or even politicians. So give us a status update. Where does One Democracy and By the People stand today here in 2021? Cool. Yeah, it's great to be back with you, Laura. Um, We are currently raising funds for beta development. We have an entire interface that we've been researching and working very diligently on for the last few years. And it's finally at a place where you can go to our website and you can explore it and you can learn how One Democracy interacts with the community. And right now we're looking to raise more awareness and kick off a sustained crowdfunding effort. A big party coming up on October 13th. What's that about? Yeah, so uh, there's a Silicon Slopes convention um, at the Salt Palace. So we are renting out a space across the street at the Soundwell to try and raise awareness in the tech community. So we got a bunch of really awesome local artists coming to play, and we're going to do a silent uh, silent auction. And basically, yeah, just kind of try to bring this community together with the tech community and explore options for the next iteration of digital democracy. Now, digital democracy, I know both of you are quite aware of the news cycle. And as we record this, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp are down. And it's uh, curious, given the explosive 60 Minutes interview on Sunday evening with the whistleblower who has documentation showing the algorithms and what Facebook knows about its harm in our civil societies. So I'm just kind of curious where you hope to position uh, by the people in one democracy in the face of this. David. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And um, I don't know if many of you are familiar with the social dilemma, but it kind of highlights how social media has been a, basically a giant as far as influencing not just commercial, but as also politics. And we kind of consider ourselves to be somewhat of an antidote for the social dilemma. So we kind of take those uh, algorithms out of the picture and we allow users to, they can verify themselves as locals. So it becomes one person, one vote versus one dollar, one vote. Ah, Joel, what are your, what's your take on what I'm sure you've either saw or um, been reading about? Well, number one, it's about time that somebody from the inside tells us what's actually been going on there. But The nice thing about what David's been working towards is we're going to be able to have a voice that isn't going to be as biased. There certainly will be some people in here that try to mess with the system, but they're not going to succeed. 
as uh, what we've ran into with all of the different um, social medias. I think that the, the repercussions that are going to happen with social media as a result, the whistleblower, it's going to change how the perception is of the social media and um, and how it, it actually affects uh, politics and, and how people think. I, I couldn't agree with David Moore about the social dilemma. Very scary stuff. And the social dilemma, explain that for folks. I think a lot of us are familiar with the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um Basically, the social media is a film that depicts the harms of uh, current social media in our political and social environments. And it describes the way that algorithms and special interests have been able to sort of divide and conquer to an extent that we haven't really ever seen with traditional journalism and other news sources. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty, how do you say it? It's, um, really divisive rhetoric that we're seeing on our social media and it's kind of tearing our communities apart and affecting our ability to really come together on, uh, common sense legislation. Yeah. Things that make us angry, the algorithm feeds that, understands that about us and our feeds and feeds it to us. I'll put a link in the show notes to this uh, 2020 documentary, The Social Dilemma. I believe it's still streaming on Netflix, folks. But um, uh, once again, what's your website, David, and the who, what, when, where, why of the October 13th event during Silicon Slopes? Awesome. Yeah, you can uh, learn more about our organization at onedemocracy.org. And there's a link to Silicon Votes 21, we're calling the event. Uh, there's, it's going to start at 5 p.m., go till midnight. We have local artists such as Morgan Snow, Burnell Washburn, Simply B, Shannon Blake, and the Spirit Machines. We're really looking forward to having them. And then we have some really awesome local sponsors for our silent auction. So, uh, yeah, you can check that out at onedemocracy.org slash siliconslopes21. And if you're interested in helping our mission, we're just getting this uh, crowdfunder off the ground and we can use all the support we can get. Thanks, David and Joel. Check tonight's show notes for links to the event at Silicon Slopes by One Democracy. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to Radioactive, a show that plugs you into the community weeknights at 6. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, the New York Times recognized climate change leader and author, up next. This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. As fire and drought rage across the West and severe hurricanes and flooding hammer the South and East coasts, climate change is front and center, yet still remains a divisive issue. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, named one of the nation's most effective communicators on climate change by The New York Times, is committed to changing the way we think about this urgent issue with her latest book. It's called Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. She's the featured speaker at Utah Clean Energy's virtual party for clean power tomorrow. And I got a chance to speak with her for a preview. Yes, uh, my name is Catherine Hayhoe. I'm the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. I am a climate scientist and I'm also a professor at Texas Tech University. Oh, and of course, I'm the author of Saving Us. Can't forget that. (laughs) It's a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. You're also an evangelical Christian, I understand. And uh, here I am in the seat of uh, Mormon HQ. And it's really interesting to see 
how climate change has entered our politics and our religion. Why is it a polarizing issue, and and especially in religious circles? Our world right now, especially in the United States, is more politically polarized than it has ever been in our lifetimes. And because of that, all kinds of issues have fallen into that huge crevasse that has opened between us. And climate change is one of those issues, as is COVID, vaccines, masks, everything else like that. But people don't wake up in the morning and just sort of decide randomly, oh, I'm going to reject 200 years of physics and also not get a vaccine. What we do is we wake up in the morning and we go to social media and we scroll through the feeds of the people who we we love and we follow and we trust, whose values and perspectives we share, and we see what they're saying. And then we listen to the politicians and the pundits who are saying things whose values we share and listen to what they're saying. And so when we pick up from these people messages like, oh, climate isn't changing or it's not a big deal or we can't fix it, that's what we base our opinion on rather than the simple facts that we've known for 200 years, which is, yes, climate is changing and we really have checked. Humans are responsible. The impacts are very serious. And some of them are already here today, but by acting now, we can truly build a better future for every single one of us, no matter where we fall on the political spectrum. You know, we have a group here called Mormons for Environmental Stewardship. And so to see uh, folks of faith then channel that in environmentalism is, I I think, um, not unique, but not as visible. And so how has faith shaped how you talk about it professionally, but also personally with Um, fellow parishioners. I completely agree with you. And the reason why I myself am a climate scientist is because I'm a Christian. I was planning to be an astrophysicist, and that's actually what my undergraduate degree is in, is astronomy and physics. When I needed an extra class to finish my degree, and I looked around and there was this brand new class on climate science. I thought, well, that looks interesting. Why not take it? And so I took it. And that was where I was completely shocked to learn First of all, that climate change is no longer a future distant issue. It's already here and now. But even more importantly, that climate change is not only an environmental issue that environmentalists care about and the rest of us wish them well. Climate change affects people. It affects our health. It affects the poorest and most vulnerable people more than anyone. And that is not fair. And what we believe, if if we believe that we're to love others as we've been loved by God, if we believe that we're to care for our sisters and our brothers who are less fortunate than us, as well as every living thing on this planet, like it says in Genesis, then I truly believe that if we take the Bible seriously, we would be out at the front of the line demanding climate action. So that's why I became a climate scientist. And when I speak with others who share my faith, that's what I share with them, too. You said you were curious about something. And I feel like we've lost our curiosity to explore things for ourselves, but seek out also legitimate sources of information. We've just kind of um, retreated into our corners and our tribes. Yes, there's actually a quote in my book about that from a writer called Eric Liu, where he talks about how as we retreat into smaller and smaller circles of kith and kin, the commons goes to seed. Oh, we are focusing more and more on what divides us rather than what unites us. But really what unites us far eclipses what divides us because we are all people. We live in a certain place. We want a better world for our kids. We want clean air to breathe, right? Especially living in Salt Lake City. We want uh, clean water to drink. We want food to eat. We want a safe world 
that does not have wars and famines and refugee crises. To get that, we have to fix climate change. Shared values is something that we say we have in common, but I feel like it's a check mark in a political debate. But you say shared values is where we can build and take action on climate change. Well, in any debate, the focus is on what you don't agree on, not what you do. That's why I hate debates. <laughs> I know. And I am not advocating for debate. And in fact, I don't debate because if, if you're in a debate arguing where one person has to win at the expense of the other, yes. I don't think anyone truly wins. Yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels like we've taken the gridiron, the sports field, and put it into the debate field. And it's, uh, you, know, you know, scorched earth. I got yes. so many metaphors into that one thing right there. <laughs> totally. So, so I'm advocating for something completely different. I'm talking about beginning conversations with something we genuinely share with someone. Whether it's that we're both parents, we both love skiing, we both love in the, live in the same city, we both you know, have a shared military experience or work in the same industry or went to the same school, whatever it is, begin with something we share, connect the dots to how climate change affects us, and then talk about positive constructive solutions where we live that our city is doing or our state or an organization we know about or we even did ourselves or our church did that we could get involved in and we could do too. I love that. Now, there's another thing that you also are, and that is a Texan, I understand. And uh, the rest of the U.S. views Texas as extremely conservative, resistant to climate solutions. So what have you seen from your local community that debunks that idea? Is what we're getting fed in mainstream media not the full picture, not fake news, but not the full picture? I think that's fair to say, not the full picture. So I live in the city of Lubbock, Texas, which is the second most conservative city in the U.S. after Provo, Utah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, Connections. Completely. And where I live, global warming and climate change are often words that will immediately turn people off. No surprise, because it's so politically polarized. But when we start conversations about other things that people agree on, and I talk a lot about this in my book, I talk about how I was waiting to pick up my son from Sunday school, and the man behind me in line waiting said, do you feel like the weather's getting weirder? And I said, yes, I study this. It is getting weirder. He's like, I knew it. I have lived here for 30 years and there is something going on. And there are points of connection that we can make with everybody through our lived experience that if we're willing to respect each other and listen to each other, rather than trying to prove our point and somehow win an argument, we can both win together. So as a person of faith and as a scientist, I want to, we've talked about how your faith has influenced how you talk about climate and climate change and climate action. But within scientific circles, you are equally open about your, your faith. What, that, what has that experience been like? Well, to be completely honest with you, uh, I was really nervous when I published my first book with my husband about 12 years ago. My husband's a pastor of a church. And so we wrote a book together about common questions that Christians have about climate change because we couldn't find any other book that answered them. The only reason I ever write a book is if I can't find another one that already says the same thing. Okay. So I want to talk in a second about why I wrote this one. Okay. But I wrote that one with my husband because he literally had nothing to hand his parishioners that answered the questions they had. Like, if God is in control, why does this matter? And when, I, when we published it, I was nervous. I felt like, you know, was I flushing my scientific career down the toilet? Would I be ostracized by my colleagues for, you know, being one of those evangelicals who checked their brain at the door? And I have to say, with complete humility, I was so wrong. 
my colleagues have been incredibly supportive. Some of them say, I share your faith. Some of them say, well, oh, I'm Catholic or I'm LDS. Others say, I don't share your faith, but I completely support what you're doing. But you know what the tragedy is on the other side? What's that? I would, I, I get hate mail um, about two or three times a day on an average day. Some days it's more like a few dozen. And I look at who these people are on social media. Before I block anybody, I look at them. I'm like, who would, who would wake up and want to do this? When I get a letter, I look at what, who that letter comes from and what they say. And fully half of the attacks that I get from people in the United States are people who identify as Christian in some way. Wow. A disconnect on our shared values significantly. Given that Jesus literally said we are to be recognized by our love for others, not our hate mail for others. So a Bible quoting scientist, I don't, I'll bet they don't know what to do with you. Do you respond to the hate mail? Um, if it's really awful, absolutely not, because there's just no point. They're not looking for a response. They're just looking to silence you and shut you up. And my best response is to keep on going. But if, if anybody approaches me civilly, I am always willing to answer questions if they are willing to listen to the answers. It's that listening part that we are struggling with so much in our country on a variety of fronts. And I'm guessing that's why you wrote your latest book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. Give us some hope. Give us some action items. Well, that's why I wrote the book is because over the last four or five years, the number one question I've gotten is where do you find hope? And so I figured if I'm a climate scientist and I'm surrounded by the doom and gloom of what's happening to our world every day, if I can find hope, surely everybody could. So I went out and I looked for it because hope does not arrive on your door. If you just sit there waiting and you just read the news headlines, they are just depressing, discouraging, scary, frustrating, you know, negative. But what I discovered is when you go out and you look at what people are doing, when you actively look at what your city is doing, what your church might be doing, or the larger denomination, what young people are doing, what older people are doing, what schools are doing, you, you can end up overwhelmed with good news to the point where you realize that climate action is not a giant boulder sitting at the bottom of an impossibly tall cliff with only a few hands on it who will never move it but rather that boulder is sitting at the top of the hill. It is rolling down the hill in the right direction. It has millions of hands on it, many thousands of them from Utah. And if you add your hand to the boulder, it will, let that, it will push that boulder just that little bit faster extra down the hill. And that is a totally different picture for us. Um, we don't find hope when we sit there and wait for it to arrive. When we act, when we go out, when we engage with other people, when we find organizations that share our values that are based where we live and we join with them too and join our voice to the chorus for positive, constructive climate solutions, hope is everywhere. Sounds like you got to be curious instead of letting that fear and anxiety overwhelm you and engage in your community. Mm -hmm. What has Texas done since the ice storm of last year that gives you hope? Well, that ice storm was a huge wake-up call because not only did it show how unprepared the power grid was for such crazy storms, it also showed that wind energy carried more of its share during that outage when natural gas and nuclear failed. <laughs> <laughs> so much for the naysayers about wind. Yes. But it also exposed the fact that it was our low-income neighborhoods 
that had the power out for the longest time, that had the most difficulty coping with those power outages because they didn't have well insulated homes, they couldn't afford to buy a generator. It showed once again how climate change takes people who are already down and pushes them even further down. Because make no mistake, a warming Arctic is what's increasing the risk of those crazy winter storms. So here in Texas, a lot of people, ordinary people, I'm not talking about the governor, I'm talking about ordinary people realize there is something wrong with our system. And I don't care who, you know, what I call myself, Republican, Independent, or, or Democrat, I want the power on in my house. <laughs> and we need to prepare for this global weirding that's affecting us right here in Texas and in Utah and really all over the entire world. So what do you think are the most important goals? Take us a year into the future. Take us five years into the future when it comes to climate change. Well, big picture, here's what we have to do. Three things. Number one, stop putting so much heat trapping gases into the atmosphere. Because when we dig up and burn coal and oil and natural gas, it produces heat trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around the planet. And just as you would if somebody snuck into your room and put an extra blanket on you, the planet is heating up. So we have to use our, our energy much more efficiently. You know, we waste over 60% of the energy we produce in this country. We waste almost 50% of the food we produce in this country. Efficiency saves us money. It's good for our pocketbook and it's good for the planet. And we have to replace our energy sources with clean sources of energy that don't produce heat trapping gas emissions like the wind and the sun with batteries, because of course we know the sun doesn't shine at night. That's number one. Number two, we have to build resilience to the changes that are already here. We already see our extreme heat in the summer, our crazy droughts and wildfires. That's already here and we have to prepare. And number three, we have to let nature help us. Because did you know carbon in the atmosphere, too much carbon in the atmosphere is, is wrapping an extra blanket around the planet, causing it to warm. But carbon in the soil, carbon in ecosystems and trees, it is healthy and good. So when we invest in conserving ecosystems, uh, preserving them, restoring them, also planting them, and when farmers use smart agricultural practices like cover crops where they plow them back into the soil, it puts carbon back in the soil and back in the trees and the forest where we want it instead of the atmosphere where we don't. So one, two, three, that's how we fix climate change. And you might say, well, where do I come in? Well, all of these changes can be done at the local scale. When you look at where you put up a wind farm, there's real humans in Utah involved in those decisions and who own that land, right? When you look at being more efficient with your energy, that's something you can even do in your own house, like replacing your light bulbs and you know, not leaving things plugged in overnight. Um, I've always wanted, and now they're finally starting to make them, a switch at your front door that turns off everything except for your alarm clock and the refrigerator when you leave the house. Ooh, I like that. I would just save so much money by doing yeah, that. I remember the campaign when I was a kid growing up and you leave the room, turn out the light, the dog that would yeah. pop up and turn it up. I do that in the office when we actually get to go to the office and it drives people crazy because I'm constantly turning lights off when I leave a room. It became a habit. Totally. And then we can be careful, like, don't buy a house in a flood zone if you can help it because our flood risks is, are increasing. Insulate our homes so that when it's hot or cold, we don't have to overspend on air conditioning or heating. And then the nature-based solutions, we can garden, we can plant trees. And 
I love working for the Nature Conservancy because they have properties all over Utah where they're restoring land. And often that land is open to the public so people can take their families there, uh, teach their children about the beauties of nature. Utah is such an incredibly beautiful state. And just let nature help us. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, author of Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world, and featured speaker at Utah Clean Energy's virtual party for clean power tomorrow. Check tonight's show notes for a link. I'm Laura Jones, and that's Radioactive, plugging you into your community. Democracy Now! coming up at 7, Vagabond Radio with Barbie at 8, Late Night Lowdown with Connor at 10.30, Super Sounds with Chovy at 1 a.m., and John Florence is back at 6 a.m. for a brand new day. Listen to any show on demand at krcl.org. I'll leave you tonight with an artist who will be in concert at the Depot December 2nd. KRCL proud to present that show with Courtney Barnett. And here is her track, I'll Be Your Mirror, the title track from the Velvet Underground tribute album on KRCL 90.9.